This is Tommy Saudor's 83. And today our guest is Dr. Sam Cox. And she is doing a research on SEALs at Sea Monitor Project. So once again, shout outs to Sea Monitor, all the crew at Sea Monitor and all the crew at the Ocean Monitoring Network. And uh, special shout outs to Ross McGill for his uh, continual support and making this episode possible. So we spoke about SEALs um, from various angles. You know, on the podcast already, we spoke about SEALs from the perspective of SEAL rescue. Uh, we spoke about SEALs from the perspective of human-SEAL conflict and how annoying they can be to people, especially fishermen. And so today we're going to talk about SEALs from the scientific perspective. Um, Sam is doing research uh, with relation to SEALs' spatial ecology uh, and is focusing on harbor SEALs in Ireland, but she also has like a ton of experience uh, and research of some other seals. And we talk about this as well, about elephant seals, for example. Uh, so if you're into seals and you're interested in uh, research and their spatial, eco space, spatial ecology, spatial ecology, spatial ecology, sorry, um, then this episode is for you. And uh, if you're new here or not sick of me saying that over and over again, uh, you should head on to Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel, find Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel and subscribe there. You can find video version of this podcast on my YouTube channel, as well as all the other podcasts, as well as vlogs and some other um, outdoorsy videos. So uh, Tommy's Outdoors YouTube channel, don't forget to subscribe. And now, um, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Sam L. Cox, and we're going to talk about SEALs. Welcome to the show. Thanks for, for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's my first podcast ever. Oh, all right. And, uh, and welcome to Ireland. You know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not Irish myself, but uh, I, I welcome you to Ireland. Like, where, where did you move from? Uh, France, actually. So I've been all in right. France for the last four years uh -huh. and um, found myself homeless in the middle of uh, the pandemic. I was actually on holiday in Vietnam, uh -huh. managed to get back to France, but was in the process of moving from yeah. France to Ireland, so my stuff was in Ireland, but I was in France. Oh, so, uh, God. It was a bit messy for, uh, for six weeks, but we managed. It was okay. All right, right. And like I said, like, thank you. Thank you even for doing this because you just moved to a new house and you just have an internet connection and bam, here you are on Tommy's Outdoors podcast. So, so thanks for that. <laughs> I appreciate you. All right. Um, listen, so uh, maybe let, let's just start... Um, you know, you are a marine biologist, am I correct saying that, right? Yeah, so uh, I... Have, yeah, you have a quite, like I, I was going to say that you have a quite impressive list of publications that, that anyone can look up at ResearchGate. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, so I'm a marine, I guess a marine biologist or ecologist, but not like rock pools and stuff more. Um, a lot of my work I actually do on a computer and it's mm -hmm. a lot of it is statistics, so... Mm -hmm. 
I think when you say marine biologist, a lot of people think, oh, yeah, you're out diving. And I actually don't know how to dive. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to mislead people. <laughs> like there are marine biologists like that, obviously. I'm just mm -hmm. not one of them. Mm -hmm. And like my field work is more, um, I do more going on boats and observing animals or measuring um, mm -hmm. oceanography in the water or tagging animals with GPS devices or yeah. um, accelerometers and um, little devices that can measure how, dive they deep, how deep they dive. Okay, okay. And, and, and obviously you're, you're part of the Sea Monitor project and we have a, quite a few uh, podcasts already uh, with relation to, to Sea Monitor. I, I'm, I'm dying to hear from you about the tags and accelerometers on the animals. But before, before we get to that, uh, question that I always ask my guests kind of uh, to understand how, how it came to be that you became, you know, marine biologists and scientists. Like, is, was that something that you were always wanted to do since you were little or whether it was like a, you know, you thought you're going to be a banker or a doctor. And on some point in your life, there was this turning point that pushed you into the direction where you are right now. So I initially wanted to be a vet. <laughs> I think it's like the classic, um, <laughs> the classic thing. because I really like dogs. And then I think I did work experience as a vet and, uh, there was a lot of, um, a lot of it was working with um, hamsters and guinea pigs, and I wasn't super keen on that. So, <laughs> so then I thought, oh, a doctor, or um, I kind of really liked the ocean, and we used to always go on holidays. When it, so I'm from Scotland, and we used to always go on holidays on the West Coast. So I always used to love going on holidays and um, being at the beach um, mm -hmm. on the West Coast. And um, it wasn't something I really thought you could do a career of. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought it would be nice to study at university and then I could see, see where it went from that. And then it just kind of, um, I was just sort of lucky and the opportunities kind of came along and I was in a position that I could take them. So the work is quite, one of the um, hard parts is that it's a lot of short-term contracts and you end mm -hmm. up moving around a lot because there's not really any long-term permanent work or uh -huh. there is sometimes, but it's hard to find. Um, so I've been lucky in that I'm in a position that I have been able to move and my partner um, is a software engineer, so he's also been able, mm -hmm. able to move. Um, but yeah, I did my undergrad in Aberdeen and then I, I took a couple years um, off where I actually just worked in a bar and mm -hmm. saved some money and then came back to do a master's and was really lucky um, in Scotland, all of our education is funded. Yeah. So um, the masters as well, because it was a fisheries masters, they, the Scottish government will fund your fees for that. So I was able uh -huh. to do that. And then at the end of that, I got accepted onto a PhD program in Plymouth in the south of um, England. And, uh, and that was just sort of very well timed. And then after that, I worked in France. I managed okay. to get some research positions. Up. And now I'm in Ireland. And I'm very happy to be in Ireland. I think it's a really nice country. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> it is. Well, you know, I can I can attest myself. I'm like 12 years here, and it, it, it was uh, all supposed to be temporary. But look, <laughs> look what happened. And uh, so, what, what's your what's what you're doing within C Monitor? Like, what is the area in C Monitor? So we obviously already just 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 to uh, you know we we already probably by the time. Uh, this episode airs, we already had an episode about, you know, what Sea Monitor is and all the ocean tracking network equipment and, and a few others. So um, 
But you can just very briefly, you know, because maybe some people didn't listen to previous episodes, which so is very briefly what that is and, and you know, what, 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 your, what your role is within the project. So C-Monitor is this big EU-funded um, project. It's funded by Interreg VA, which is um, a component of the EU scientific funding that's specifically for cross-border research. And mm. the kind of aim of C-Monitor is to get a better understanding of the distribution of um, mobile predators across mm -hmm. the, I think it's the Irish Sea, kind of um, the west coast of Scotland and northern, northern Ireland. So mm -hmm. because these animals move between countries, you need to have cooperation. Like the, the project is involving researchers in England and Northern Ireland in, mm -hmm. uh, in Scotland and in Southern Ireland. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there's many from England, actually. I think there's maybe just fieldwork in England. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's giving us some um, cross-border cooperation to understand more about where animals are across that sea and monitoring them using um, different techniques that are kind mm -hmm. of new. So I think they've got various components of the project looking at salmon and migration using acoustics. They've got um, skate, they've got basking sharks, they've got a cetacean component. And the component I'm working on is um, looking at the behavior and movements of rehabilitated harbor seals, which oh, have been um, taken in as juveniles from the north, um, the north um, east coast of Northern Ireland for whatever reason. I think you've had a seal rehabilitation Podcast yes, yes, sea, uh, sea Rescue Ireland. Uh, yeah, so here. they tend to get taken in because they, usually it's kind of disturbance at beaches and mm -hmm. the pups yeah. can end up. Or I think there was one recently that a dog had had, um, yeah. had had an encounter with a dog. But So they end up in the seal sanctuary. And so our component is to, um, when they're ready for release, we basically glue um, this device to the top of their head. It's quite small. Um, and it will track the movement of the animal using GPS, and it will also record how deep it dives, how long it dives, and the time in between dives. And then when the animal's at the surface for long enough, it will transmit all that information to us using the mobile phone network. Mm -hmm. So we get almost real-time information on the seals. And we're trying to just understand a bit better about when they're released, because in the rehabilitation center, they're hand-fed fish. So we yeah. wanted to know, are they actually able to figure out how to, to live on their own in the sea yes, and catch yeah. fish? Are they able to forage? Can they dive? Because the rehabilitation center just has a, you know, a, it's not a small tank, but it's not the ocean. Yeah. So, yeah. and where do they go? And another thing we're interested to look at is, are these seals more, um, do they interact with humans more because they were rehabilitated? So mm -hmm. because they're used to people, one of the things yeah. that we're going to have a look at is we're going to try to see are they approaching fishing boats more or are they approaching like beaches and try to get an understanding of what's going on. And yeah. so, so I have so, so many questions <laughs> straight away. <laughs> uh, so these are seals specifically rescued in Northern Ireland? Yeah. Yeah, okay. so the, we're working with a, um, with a seal rescue centre called Explorus, which mm -hmm. is in Portaferry. Mm -hmm. um, and so they work the Northern Ireland coastline. Yes. And... And so, wow, where, where, to, where to start? So first of all, can you, can you tell me more about how you're gluing that device? And because it it's certainly will, will come off after, after a while, right? When, once the animal sheds the skin or, or fur. Exactly. Yeah, so we use um, a very quick setting glue. You basically cover the base of the tag and glue and just put it on the back of mm -hmm. the, it's kind of the lower head back of the neck. Mm -hmm. so Do you need to shave it? 
to put it on the skin? No, we just we just clean it. Um, oh, so, so on, the, it, on the fur, on the actual hide, on the on the hair, on the fur, on. yeah. And oh. so then, because the seals molt every year, when they molt their fur, this, the tag will just drop off, and they won't have the tag on for all their life. Because the the problem with studying something like a seal is that you you can't recatch them, so or it's very hard to so. In my previous work, I've worked with, um, say, gannets, yeah. and we put GPS devices on a gannet. And those are much, much smaller, but we don't need them to be able to transmit data. And we attach those just using, um, it's essentially just a really good version of sellotape. Um, and you just kind of sellotape it to the, the feather. But the bird will, you do it in the breeding season. So the bird goes away, but then it comes back to its nest to feed its chick. So you yeah. know it's going to be back and you can recatch it at that moment to get the tag back. But the seals, you don't, you don't know where they're going to be. So yeah. you want something that you can get data from using so the mobile phone network here. When I worked, um, so my previous work in France, I was working in the Southern Ocean. And there, obviously, there's not mobile phone networks. So they use tags that transmit via the Argos satellite system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just another method to transmit data. Uh, and that way, we can get the information. But because we glue it to the fur, the tag's not on the animal forever. And yeah. when the battery dies, the tag will fall off. Yeah. And then it's, yeah. yeah, then it's just um, discarded, basically. And how, so, so how far seal will travel? Because I presume you, you glue it in just before it's, it's going to be released from, from that center. So then again, um, from what I know from, from the uh, Sea Rescue Ireland podcast, that's kind of like a juvenile seal. Yeah. So how, how, how relevant is that data? Because, you know, I would imagine, and like, I know nothing about it, right? This is a question that you put it on a juvenile seal that is just released and that seal, you know, since the tag is there only for like a year maximum, I presume. Yeah, you, most you of them are that, that seal not gonna have a chance to do much interesting things <laughs> because it's just a juvenile seal who was just released. Or, or am I wrong in that? I'm probably wrong in that because... So it's interesting because um, initially most of what we knew about harbor seals was that they tend to stay within 10, 20 kilometers of a site and they're quite, um, uh, what's the word? Um, like they, they stay in the same place. I'm trying to think of the word. Fidel, I think is the word maybe. Oh, okay. um, like um, they have like a home if you want. Yeah. And... Um, and they come, they come back, like they will move, but they tend to stay quite close to the coast. So most of the seals haven't gone much further than 20 kilometers from the coast, but so far we've released six in the study. Mm-hmm. So the first two were released back in November last year. They all have, um, the aquarium will give them Disney names. So they were Ariel and Merida. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Ariel immediately um, traveled up the north coast, swam over to the Isle of Man, she then swam over to the Scottish coast, up the estuary in towards Gretna Green, Carlisle estuary. So it's Robin Riggs is around there. She then came back over, went up past Port Patrick, over to the Mullican Tire, then up to Isla in um, the Inner Hebrides, then came back down, went back into Carlisle, and then swam all the way down to North Wales. And she ended up kind of settling um, in Liverpool Bay and actually ended up doing these repeat trips to and from a wind farm. Um, where she hung around for about a month um, until um, we stopped getting data, but she was just getting repeat trips to the wind farms and coming back to the beach wow. and coming back out. So that's really big. But then the second seal, and she was, I think she was 
half a year old when they released her, roughly something like that. Wow. The second seal, uh, Marita did a similar thing. She went all the way around um, kind of the Irish Sea and ended up in South Wales. But then the, we released another three in March and those guys have all stayed along the Northern Ireland coast and ended up down in Dundalk and going up rivers and coming up and down rivers. And then we recently had another seal we released who he's not done so well because um, he's kind of interesting. He'd actually been in the rehabilitation center for nearly a year um, mm -hmm. because he didn't do so well in learning how to, so they feed, they hand, they first, they feed them a liquid food, then they start feeding them fish. Mm -hmm. And then I think they transfer them to a pool and they kind of throw fish in the water mm -hmm. and they want the seals to get the fish themselves before the seagulls do basically. Yeah. And he didn't, he took a long time to figure out how to get just a fish that was lying in the water. Um, but he was ready for releasing COVID and they couldn't release him for a while. So he's been in the center a lot longer than, than normal. So he stayed really close to the coast. Um, and I'm not sure how well he's doing with foraging. I need to have a look at that data. But he went all the way down to Dublin and actually went into Dublin port. So I've got locations of him in among the, the shipping port. So, <laughs> so they do quite a lot. Um, oh, we yeah, weren't expecting them to surprising to me. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So How long does the, sea, does the harbour seal live? So I think... What I've read is uh, the, the males live, I think it's 25 to 30 years, and the females are 30 to 35, roughly. I think that's right. I could be wrong on that, but it's around that, oh, that ballpark. Okay. okay, okay. So quite, quite, mm -hmm. a, quite a, really quite a lot uh, yeah. happening. What's your, what's your kind of like a side question? What's, what's your view on giving names to the study animals? Because I heard like, it, you know, uh appears that you know you don't give a names to wildlife it's a wildlife and it gives this disneyfying kind of vibe to it you know they should have a numbers and so on but then on the other hand like you said it's 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 also happens that they're giving getting names yeah so i um i usually deal with like numbers so like um aerial to me was one seven one five oh oh seven eight i think oh. <laughs> and they just have tag ids um but the names are, they are easier to remember. Like you do just remember the name. Yeah. I think like they're, the, they're good for the podcast because you can say like, Ario done this. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the aquarium, I assume do it because it's engaging for kids, you mm -hmm. know? So they have like in the aquarium, they yeah. have the, the seal hospital and they have a, a one-way um, mirror, you know? So you can see the seals, they can't see the public. Mm -hmm. And they have kind of like the names of all the seals. And I think people can kind of follow the story so I think it's a nice way to engage young people with the environment mm -hmm. and to get them a bit more connected with nature and wildlife. But I agree, like, we do have to be careful not to anthropomorphize the animals because they are animals, they're not people, and they are wildlife. And yeah, yeah. Like you said, like, for me, they were numbers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Listen, um, and we had, a, we had a little bit of a, of a chat before we started recording, and... and uh, uh you know like like you said you're you're only kind of getting immersed in the into you know a situation with seals in in ireland um but i'm uh, like overall um what do you think 
is what what's what's the role and how important is the role of the centers like this rehabilitation center like we have a two in ireland um seal rescue ireland and the other one is i think seal sanctuary now you tell, tell say, telling us about the one in northern ireland um are like how important are they and 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 why so i probably can't give you a great answer to that oh um, like from your perspective like from your <laughs> perspective so i'm not sure how much like on a population level how much in, like what impact they have on the overall population so harbor seals um are protected by under both i think i well in in northern ireland they're protected under the wildlife conservation act in the uk yeah. within ireland they have their own national protection legislation mm -hmm. and they're also listed under the eu as an annex two species so they've got several levels of protection and um i believe that the gray seal populations have been increasing generally although i know that the population counts there are difficulties like the monitoring is is patchy um, in harbor seals, they've been decreasing in some areas of the UK and Ireland. Decreasing. Some er oh. decreasing, yeah. So the population is stable in some areas. I think there's a few areas where it might be increasing very small amount, but there's other areas where it's been decreasing. And I think some of the decreases have been quite big. So, mm -hmm. like, I, I'm not, in, I might be wrong on this, but I think you're looking at like 5 to 10% decrease. In population which wow. at that point is you know there needs to be conservation measures set up um harbor seals are not endangered on a worldwide scale but i think that some populations in some areas are yeah or are not doing so well um and it's a long-lived species so um I, I think like we do have kind of a you know they live in the ocean and we interact with them so we have like some kind of moral obligation to coexist mm -hmm. sustainably with them yeah. um the seal centers i don't know so one of the things we'd like to do with this project is we're trying to understand like do they survive after yeah. they've been released like are they so some of the seals we've tracked most of them we've got data from at least four or five months which would suggest that they are managing to survive and forage mm -hmm. and that those seals are being successfully rehabilitated mm -hmm. um the most recent one doesn't look like he was doing so well he was in the center for a very long time. Yeah, so that, that might be an impact. Like, like he might be too reliant because you don't know, you know, you rehabilitate an animal and you are, you, you can't mimic the wild. You just yeah. do the best that you can. And I think the centers do a very good job, but you know, there's only so much they can do. Um, and then the animal needs to, and seals are not, they aren't taught by their mothers. So in the wild, they would be, Kind of fattened up when they're born and then they're left to kind of figure it out themselves mm -hmm. and so the center they release them when they're a bit fatter than normal so that they have a fat reserve to keep them going while they learn how to forage mm -hmm. um as to how many seals survive um so that's something we'll look at and we'll try and get an idea on how successful the rehabilitation program is then the impact it has on actual the population of harbor seals on a wider scale i'm, I'm not sure like how, because I mean, you're looking at explorers, I think we'll do um, this season, we'll rescue 10 um, harbor seal pups. I don't know what their long-term survival would be after, we can tag them for maybe six months maximum. Mm -hmm. After that, 
I'm not sure what the longer term survival would be and what that impact has on population dynamics. So I believe there are people looking into that mm-hmm. with some modeling. Um, yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't so, so, but you're saying that the gray seal population is increasing generally? Generally, from what I understand, the gray seal population is increasing. Okay. So I think in Scotland, they've had increases. I think in Ireland, um, so I read they did a population count in 2007 mm-hmm. or 2003, and it had increased to what they had before. But it's, I think it's quite difficult for them to know because you have to, you know, you have to use comparable methods. You have to be yeah. careful that you aren't sampling a year where for some reason there's a lot of seals about likes with likes yeah and you know like seals are i i think what they so i i I haven't done any population assessment myself but i think they use a lot of counts and they look at kind of minimum size counts that they get um but you know you have to look at whole out behaviors so are you doing it um so for example um harbor seals i think in in the inner hebrides they um forage a lot at specific times of the tide so depending when you did your count, you could get quite a big difference. And then you want to try to correct for that, but you need to know, you need to have quite a lot of information to correct for that, to make sure that you're not either underestimating or overestimating, like, or correcting and overestimating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a lot of effort to, to monitor. I mean, it is, EU law is that it should be monitored. So yes. the, the, as an Annex 2 species, it has to be kept at favorable population levels and to keep a to keep it at favorable levels you need to have an idea of yeah of what, of the, of numbers. what the numbers are listen so so wow as uh you know i don't i don't know i have so many questions i write written them down to to because we can go one rabbit hole and then i forget about the other yeah. one so just to take it out of the way about the um, rescue seals and the survival rate you know my thought is that um, uh, and I, I just want to throw it out as my thought. I know if you want to comment on that, that those seals that are being rescued, they they may may have got into trouble in the first place for a reason. You know what I mean? And if they get rehabilitated and released, they will get in the same type of trouble again. And the whole you know process of rehabilitation was because they're wild animals, right? They might have some, let's call it defect that doesn't allow them to do it right and the reason they they were emaciated on the beach and and rescued from there they were fattened up and fed fed well and released and but the but the like a core problem why they find the why they ended up on that beach emaciated in the first place is still there and they're going to end up doing the same in eight months time right so this is this is one of those things so a lot of the um seals they take in are actually it's more that they've ended up being disturbed by somebody walking on the beach and then a crowd has, there's been a crowd around them. And so when it gets too crowded, if the mother is away, it abandons them. Abandons. So it's not really that the seals are doing particularly bad. It's just sort of that they're unlucky and that they just happen to have ended up in a public place where a lot of people have gone. And then the mother has abandoned because of human disturbance. So in that scenario, I think, um, we maybe do have an obligation to to try to rehabilitate because they they have been disturbed and in the case of the harbor seal the populations are not doing very well at the moment so you know that is of concern um, and 
disturbance at beaches. I mean, I, I, I don't know too much about it, but I know you have, you know, some, some beaches where they, where they pup are very remote and, um, you know, they're not going to get disturbed. But there's other beaches where, you know, there's a lot of human traffic and there might be signs up, but people might be walking their dogs, the dog might be off the lead. Yeah. You know, it's not really like the pup is just doing, doing badly. I think those ones probably tend not to be found, the ones that just weren't doing well because they probably die at sea rather than okay. on the beach. I mean, I'm sure there are cases as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's interesting. Okay, what's, what's, what should we say? Like, what is the difference in, 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 in life or in behavior between harbor seal and a gray seal that one are, ones are doing, well, relatively good, that's, you know, I'm using this word, and the other? Because for some reason, I would thought that it's a gray seal who tends to be on the more open waters and is bigger would be the one under more pressure either from human or from like just environment change, changes, changing by humans. Then the harbor seal who tends to be, you know, harbor seal, right? Like closer to humans. And, you know, I, I think that you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the animals who adapted to live next to humans, they're usually doing well because they're kind of using humans and all our garbage and other stuff as a resource and they thrive on it. Um, that's why kind of like in my head, it was like, oh, harbor seal are probably okay. That's the gray seal that, that are in trouble. And you saying that it's probably other way around. Like, so what's the difference is why it's happening. So I, I don't know. Um, and sorry. That's, that's, fair, I, enough. Um, that's fair enough. So I'm just, I'm just I, digging. <laughs> I think people are trying to understand that a bit more. So I don't, I don't think they know. And there are places where you have um, harbor seals and gray seals together, and they're both doing fine. You have places where you have them together, the harbor seals are decreasing and the gray seals are increasing. So it's not really, and we're not really sure why, like it doesn't look like there's particular threats that, you know, are affecting one and not the other, as far as I know, but I haven't, I'm not up to date on this. Um, I think that gray seals are very generalist predators and very good at adapting. I'm not sure how harbor seals are in comparison and gray seals can, you know, they will go quite far offshore. So they maybe have a, a wider range of habitats that they do. Mm -hmm. I believe that um, they, they're a bit more opportunistic. Um, although my understanding is that harbor seals are as well. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, gray seals are also a bit bigger. They're, mm -hmm. you know, just a bit more. Um, yeah. I think they're probably just a bit more resilient. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is so also. Something in my head is like, if something is bigger, it has a bigger problem to survive. <laughs> Why if something <laughs> is size of a cockroach, they probably can get it. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also um, like disease. So I don't know if there's differences in their susceptibility uh -huh, to disease. Yes. Um, so like there's been the, some of the big declines of seals, I think were related to um, it's focid distemper. So it's kind of like canine distemper, but in seals. Oh. Um, so they had big problems with that. And I'm not sure if that possibly impacts them slightly mm -hmm. differently. Mm -hmm. I have read that harp seals may be a bit more susceptible. So right, right. Okay. So just, just, I, I want to wind back a, a little bit to the, tags and and that you said that you're using a mobile network 
to get it. Yeah. So, so harbor, so um, harbor seals are not going that far offshore to to you know uh, lose the reception, <laughs> let's say, so, or whether they're going but they're always coming back, and that's where you get the data. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the nice things about working um, here is that it's quite a complex um, area. So we have lots of islands. The sea is not massive. Like they're not going out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. They're foraging across the Irish Sea or the Celtic Sea. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so um, most of them have been within 20 kilometers of the coast. Um, a few, I think when they've crossed over to the UK, they've ended up a bit further. Mm -hmm. But the tags will take the data, they keep the data on board. Mm -hmm. And then when they, when they come in range of the mobile phone network, yeah. They will transmit it. So if the seal is too, it's out of range of the mobile phone network, we might not get any information mm -hmm. for two or three days. But then when it okay. comes within range, we'll suddenly get a load of information come through and it will update us on what the seal's been doing for the last three days. Yeah. And so you kind of get it in blocks like that. And in what intervals the, the tag is, is taking measurements? Is it like every minute, every hour? So, um, we get a location every, it, so it attempts to get a location. So the problem with GPS is it needs to be at Above. the surface mm -hmm. yeah, and seals are diving. So it attempts to get a location every 15 minutes. Uh -huh. And uh, so far looking at, um, at, the, at the data from Ariel, um, that it was doing pretty well. It was usually between 15 and 20 minutes, most of the location. So it's quite okay. high resolution. Then for the dives, we have... Um, a wet dry sensor, a saltwater sensor on the mm -hmm. tag. So mm -hmm. it knows when the, the animal is diving. And then it also records the depth. So when the animal goes under, I think it's a meter depth and the tag is wet for eight seconds or something. There's some thresholds. The, mm -hmm. um, it will start recording. And in that instance, it takes a pressure measurement, which we can use to get the, the depth from the, the depth. surface. And that's every second. Wow. So it's so it's really granular information. It's not it's, yeah, it's not like one of those tags that that blips once a day and you can have it like a general. No, it's vicinity. it's really high resolution. The 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 only um, limitation we have is um, because we don't get the tag back and it's transmitted via the mobile phone network. We have to limit the amount of data that we transmit because if we transmit huge amounts of data, we're not going to manage to. It takes time to uplink, and the mm -hmm. seals only you know, for a certain amount of time. So you need to make the messages quite small. Um, here with the mobile phone network, it's a lot more flexible. When I was working on the, the Southern Elephant Seals, because mm -hmm. that's with the satellite, it's really small messages. So, you, yeah. so what we do is we have algorithms on the tag, which will summarize that data and then give us a summary. So right. for example, here, we would get a, all the locations we'll get, but for the dive data, we won't, have the one second data transmitted to us. We will have maybe um, 10, 10 points along a dive or mm -hmm. you'll get the maximum depth of the dive. And then we kind of fit a model to figure out how can we summarize the dive into like six points and then just transmit that. And it will give gotcha. you the general shape of the dive. And then you have, you know, the time. So you can kind of do some reconstruction. Um, there's different ways of doing that depending on how, you're, how, you're, how high resolution data you want and what the... Yeah priorities of your research um, sure, aim sure, are. sure. So yeah. it's, I presume there's, there's uh, very little, um, that the tag itself is not sophisticated enough to do some sort of a data compression or anything because it needs to be very small. Um, it does. 
like uh, like maybe, maybe let me rephrase the question like how how sophisticated is is the electronics or the computer in a tag is it fairly simple or is it quite advanced piece of kit so it can be quite advanced um the issue is it has to be very well um set up to be as efficient as possible because we don't want to drain the battery because the battery is the heaviest part of the tag and okay. we don't want to have to put a huge battery on the animal um Hmm. And then the, the size of the messages. So in the example of the Southern Elephant Seals, um, that is messages of, I think it's, uh, less, it's less than 100 bytes, wow. maybe 128 bytes. And so we will compress down from that. On those tags, um, the nice thing we were doing in that project, um, which in this project we are concentrated on just understanding diving behavior and um, movement, in the project in the, in the Southern Elephant Seals, we were looking, um, we wanted to know a bit more about how they forage and if we could get more information from tag, tags. So we were kind of doing a pilot study on a new type of tag. Mm -hmm. And in this scenario, they had accelerometers on them. So um, the accelerometers will measure along three axes. So you have your X, Y, Z axes, mm -hmm. we'll get acceleration. And from that, we can start to say, okay, how much um, effort is the animal using to swim? So we can calculate how often it's, um, it's moving its flippers. And we can also wow. calculate um, when it moves its head to catch prey, we can identify a prey catch attempt is what we call it. So wow. we don't know if it managed to catch prey, but we know that it made okay. a jerky movement with its head. And so the, those tags have, um, they're sophisticated enough that we can filter the accelerometer data, identify the prey catch attempts rates, and then note them down. So we'll split the dive into five segments and we'll say, okay, there were 10 attempts in that segment, no attempts in that segment. And then we transmit that data back. So wow. tags are quite impressive. Wow. Um, yeah. And are those tags also glued in or are they like a collar, collar tag? No, they're also glued in. So um, collar tags on a seal would just come off. Um, because they don't really have like a neck, a neck if you want. Um, but also I think they would create a lot of drag. So um, I've worked on seabirds and seals. On seabirds, the big thing is weight. You need the tags to be as small as possible because they fly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in seals, the weight is also an issue, but another big thing with seal tags is drag. So you want the tag to be as streamlined as possible because mm -hmm. the animals moving through water and drag can be yeah, yeah. an issue. Shape so, of the yeah. shark fin or something. Yeah, something like nicely <laughs> streamlined into the animal. <laughs> uh, listen, I have a, I have a question um, more like, um, relate, like uh, the wider ecosystem. What is the role of seals in the ecosystem so you know why 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 we need them because that's a you know although i had already two episodes where we were discussing seals i didn't get the answer to that question you know, like why they're important in the ecosystem yeah i think it's um it's like what is important you know like it's a it's kind of a moral thing in some ways like everybody has a different opinion right on what is important like some people might say yeah we should just exploit the environment as much as possible other say people say we need to sustain it we have like a moral obligation to to not impact the earth too much and other people might not agree with that so i obviously think that uh the environment should be protected and conserved um 
Seals are a top predator. So in most systems, I mean, there are some systems where they are eaten by other animals, but um, they tend like to be what? top predators. Like sharks. That's the best. That's... Yeah. So um, you might have sharks, um, killer, killer whales as well. Sharks and killer um, whales. Okay. Yeah. I think it depends on the seal species. So like um, in the, I, I don't think a gray seal has any predators, but I, I do know that gray seals will have been known to hunt, um, or I don't know if it's hunt, but they've been known to kill harbor seals. Um, so, which gray seals? Yeah, it's not not oh. frequently, but they are known to to attack harbor seals. Um, yes, and is, but is harbor. it is it like it's not for food? I presume that's a competition. It's a. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But I'm not. I'm not sure. Okay, I'm not sure because I'm not. I'm not super. Like I'm quite new to the to the um, harbor seal, gray seal mm-hmm. world. Um, sure. And then I know in the Southern Ocean, so like the adult um, Southern elephant seals are huge, like they weigh a ton. So yeah. those guys obviously don't get predated, but the juveniles will. So um, the juvenile survival rates in Southern elephant seals are between 40 and 60%. So survival. quite a lot. Wow. Yeah, so in their, f- their first year survival rates are quite, are quite low, half of them won't make it and that might be so when we did that study we reckoned that we had um 20 animals we put we tagged and nine of them died um within the first year most of them died within the first three to four months these were all wild animals none of these were rehabilitated mm-hmm. um and we think that some of it was just not development of foraging behavior like the okay. they just didn't they didn't seem to go to quite the right places or they just didn't seem to quite, you know, figure it out. Yeah. Like there was, there was one that was very light um, when he was released and he ended up just, he just couldn't dive as deep as the other ones. He couldn't dive for very long. He would have a very long period in between every dive. Like he just wasn't, he just didn't seem to do so well. Mm -hmm. But then there was another one we had that um, Hmm. was doing very well. Um, We thought would, would be fine and then there was like a weird um spike in the data where he was basically everything was fine he was behaving very much so we did a comparison between the ones that survived and the ones that didn't and he was behaving very much like the ones that survived and then he just had this big spike in the data where he suddenly dived um quite deep for a very long time he did a lot of very fast movements like covered a lot of distance in a day and then all of a sudden didn't wasn't really able to dive at all like did very very shallow dives so we weren't sure one of our kind of um Mm. speculations was that possibly it had been he'd been predated like he'd been in an attack um so they have sleeper sharks out there that will that will eat them um which sharks are sleeper sharks sleeper sharks i never heard about those yeah so um so yeah, but yeah. So back to yeah. The, it seems it seems like he was grabbed and dragged under the water, and then yeah, I don't some, know something that, happened to him, and then when he surfaced, he was already you know busted up and couldn't dive in. Yeah, I don't know if it was that or if he was chased, you know, and, or maybe and he was chased. went di- went deep, or you know, like at one point we thought he might have got the bends, you know. So seals are very good at um, compressing them the air and they compress their lungs when they dive so they they don't get the bends like humans do from diving but you know we thought maybe he just had a bad episode and come up too fast but when we looked at the 
at the actual vertical ascent and descent data, there wasn't anything, like he hadn't actually come up too fast. He'd just gone very deep for very long. And then his horizontal, he, he did a lot of distance those days. Like he just traveled very far that day compared to other days. So oh. did he recover or did he die in the end? No, then he, he died. So in that, in that um, study, because um, one of the limitations is when you have the tag on the animal and the tag stops working, you don't know if the animal has died or if the tag just stopped working. Uh -huh. um, so in that study, we had actually put two tags on each animal. So we had um, two sets of like data. Of, yeah. yeah, so we had a second tag that was just giving us location. And so we, we basically um, assumed that if both tags stopped working simultaneously, that was the animal dying, not a tag failure rate. Mm -hmm. um, and we didn't actually have any scenarios where one tag stopped working, the other didn't, because the, um, the exactly. deployments um, were specifically for a set amount of time. Yeah. So, so you're basically saying that, see that the tag uh, transmits the same data all the time. Is, is that, or is it just the CO syncs and it never, never transmits again? Yeah, so um, in some seals, they're kind of, I think when they, they die, they'll go, they go belly up. So we put the tag on the back, but because the belly is oh. more fat, they'll go belly up so the tag will stop transmitting and then it will eventually sink. Oh, okay, so okay. It's, it's rare you get the tags back. Um, occasionally, they'll wash up on a beach and then if somebody finds them, they have... Um, so we work, the tags that we're doing in the Sea Monitor project were getting from St. Andrews University. So there's um, the Sea Mammal Research Unit there produce tags specifically mm -hmm. for doing research on marine mammals. And there's an email address on them to send okay, so to, to can... contact if you find a tag. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's rare. It's very unlikely, but yeah. you don't know. Yeah. Okay. So let's wind back. Like, why, why seals are important in, in the ecosystem? Like as a, as a top predator, this is, this is really the answer. So, I mean, for me, I think that their ecosystems are really complex, right? Mm -hmm. And um, um, so, yeah, ecosystems are very complex and you have many components and you might have, um, you have variation between places. So you could have somewhere with a fairly simple ecosystem where you just have one or two top predators or, and then you have some middle species, some lower species, your plankton, mm -hmm. or you yeah. could have a very complex one where you have many, many different aspects. And if you remove um, a top predator from the system, that can just throw the balance of everything. So especially um, from what I understand in, the, the evidence has been in these simpler systems where you don't have so many. Um, it can have very unexpected cases. So like, um, sorry, I think it's a phone company. <laughs> trying to phone. Um, so you can have um, unexpected things happen. Like you, you decrease the number of seals um, and that might allow what they're eating to suddenly increase. And if you don't know exactly what they're eating, you could suddenly get a case where this population goes massive and then that population, because it's now unchecked, will then destroy. Yeah, have a, knock, yeah have a knock on effect on, on everything else. So one of the, I think the classic example um, they talk about is with sea otters. Mm. Um, so I think it was in the West coast of the States. Um, I can't remember why, but the sea otter population crashed and sea otters were eating the urchins and keeping the urchin population in check and the urchin population suddenly got huge and this then meant that all the kelp got destroyed by the urchins and that destroyed a massive habitat 
for a lot of other species that were either commercially important or just important to the ecosystem. So it just threw the whole thing off yeah. balance. And yeah. so I think that um, whilst, you know, we might be in, you know, they eat the fish and we might be in competition with other fish or, you know, different aspects. Like we don't, we don't fully understand what the specific role is. And if you start to, to mm. mess with that, it could have unforeseen um, consequences. You also have things like, so they, they regulate other species abundance is basically what that's about. But mm. then we also have things like the presence of seals in your environment will probably impact the structure of that environment. So, you know, mm. predator prey interactions, like if you have, um, a gray seal somewhere you might find that your harbor seals are distributed somewhere else or you know slightly differently to have different niches mm -hmm. you then have like maybe it impacts where the fish are because the fish you know will try to avoid predation yes, to an yeah. extent so like in seabirds you get this um this effect called ashmole's halo which is basically um when you have a seabird colony mm -hmm. so like gannet colonies you could have 80,000 gannets you know sitting on so i think out at, at skellig michael they have, I think it's around 40 or 50,000 gannets out there during breeding season, uh, at Little Skellig, sorry. And, um, and around the colony, um, you'll find that the animals don't really forage there. They go much further because there's an, like, there, there isn't really food because either they deplete it or the fish avoid it because they know. Yeah, yeah. So there's that. Um, and then there's also things like nutrient transfer. So like seals are eating the fish but then they're also pooping back into the ocean. So they're recycling the nutrients and that will right. then go down into the benthos and probably be important to, to keeping the benthos alive and going. Mm. Um, I've read things about, I think there was something about walruses um, forage along the seafloor. Mm -hmm. And so they, they very lightly disturb the seafloor. And apparently that's quite important for, for different habitats along the benthos to have like kind of a turnover of the nutrients there. Um, and then you also have just things, yeah, like they move around the environment, they disturb yeah. stuff. So, yeah. so there's lots of, it's quite complex. I think there's yeah. lots of ways yeah. that they yeah. are important. Yeah. And like, just for the record, I'm not questioning their importance. It was just, um, no, no, I, I, think I, I, I disappointingly never, never got the <laughs> answer, you know, like I got, just got from you, uh, you know, laying it out, importance in the ecosystem, um, you know, so uh, thanks for that. <laughs> Listen, uh, you 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 made uh, uh, done a lot of research on other seals like elephant seals and and weddell seals. Are there any major or striking differences in their in their life history or their their biology or behavior compared to harbor seals and and gray seals that we have around here? So um, a lot of the work that I did on the Weddell seals and elephant seals was um, a lot about um, developing methods to understand movement and behavior. Mm -hmm. So I'm not an expert on their biology as such. Mm -hmm, um, sure. So like I'm not, into, I wouldn't be able to make comparisons of life history just because I would need to update a bit more on that. Sure, sure. But there are obviously differences. I mean, like here, gray seals and harbor seals are in the, are in a shelf sea environment, you know, so we live on the continent, like we're on the continental shelf. The yeah. water is only 200 meters deep at its deepest point, really. Mm -hmm. The seals live within that environment, like harbor seals can come I love like land. scientists are saying like, oh, they are only 200 meters deep. It's like <laughs> yeah. nothing, like, I mean, like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, but then you go to the um, to the Southern Ocean, and these guys are living in. I mean, so the the colony I was working with are on a French island called Kerguelen, which is in the middle of the subantarctic. There's nothing there, so those pups um, that we were those juveniles that we were looking at with the accelerometers, the first trip they do is a thousand kilometers. Like they basically. <laughs> You know, so your harbour seal's doing a 20-kilometre trip, but those little guys are going 1,000 kilometres out into the middle of the sea and then coming back, and they come back to the same island. Um, so it's, wow. quite, it's quite impressive. Um, so I think, like, there's obviously big challenges. Like, they, they dive a lot deeper as well. So um, the seals that we've released, I have got records of, of the pups diving to 120 metres was the deepest one I have, but most of the time it's around 20 to 30 meters is kind of the average um, time, whereas the, the elephant seals will go easily to a couple hundred meters when they dive. Um, and then the other, the other cool thing that they do, which I don't, I don't know if, if gray seals and harbor seals do this. I think when harbor seals rest, um, they tend to either haul out and rest on the side or they kind of bob in the ocean or they can rest underwater. Um, but the elephant seals will actually just um, kind of go to sleep in the water and then they drift in the water, underwater. So they can, they can be underwater for 40 odd minutes an hour. And they, they sleep um, in the water. Pretty much. So like we, it's really cool because we can look at the, what we can do with that is when you can identify these periods of their dive when they've essentially, we call it drifting. Mm -hmm. So they've essentially been asleep and they're, they're drifting with the water and, based on whether or not they're going up or down when they drift, we can tell if the animal is negatively or positively buoyant. Mm -hmm. And from that, we can start to understand a bit more about what condition they're in. So are they in a really good condition and very fat and have like excess fat reserves, or are they in a poorer condition where they've just got their muscle, but they don't really have any fat reserves. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's quite cool about them. Um, in, it's funny because like was the, like like we we kind of used to um about us humans say like oh if you're in a good condition you don't have fat you have this muscle and whatever but it, wildlife like that's a hard live life out there and you're fit if you actually have a fat because that's kind of like a different yeah some fat reserve it's a good thing because you don't know when your next meal is coming exactly exactly <laughs> oh, yeah. exactly um, yeah. Listen, so that's 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 interesting, and because they're 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 so yeah, there's there's the harsher conditions. Listen, uh, we we're gonna be wrapping this up uh, shortly, um, but before before we started the podcast, obviously one one of the things that I always digging is the human seal conflict, and and it, we we had a I had a podcast about it at least once, and you you told me interesting thing uh before about uh seal call and like that that might actually not have the results like people think they will have would, would you would you like to share that with us yeah so i i don't know a lot about culling like it's not my area of expertise mm. at all um and i've just read a little bit from interest so yes. i'm not like like i i would i wouldn't want to give a an official statement on it but from what i understand is that because of this role seals have in the ecosystem, there have been, I was reading about a case, I think it was in Alaska in the 70s where they'd culled because there was a salmon farm and they thought the seals were competing. Um, they, they wanted to have the salmon for the fish, for, for us, for the fish, fishers. And um, 
And so they thought if they depleted the seal population, that would release pressure on the salmon. Um, But when they did it, it turned out that the seals were actually mainly eating, I think it was like some kind of flounder and not that much of the salmon. So the salmon population kind of stayed the same, but this flounder population suddenly got huge because they'd removed a lot of seals. And then um, Uh as a result of that, they had a clam fishery and the clam fishery just collapsed because all the flounders were eating the clams. Mm -hmm. So it ended up not really helping the fishery they wanted it to help and kind of destroying another fishery. So it's just, it needs to, it's very difficult to, to know what's going to happen when you start to interfere with the environment because you just, you just don't know. So there are like, there's the moral side of it. Like, is it right? And that's one argument. And then there is also just the science side, like, is it going to work? And that's like, you know, you know, like with the, the big thing at the moment is with the badger culls. I don't know if that's in Ireland, but they talk about yes, this. Yes, yes, yes. There, there is this in thing the ongoing and with uh, uh, supposedly to eradicate TB. And it's like... Exactly. And all the research is showing that badger culls don't Don't, don't do anything, essentially. Exactly. It's like a fraction and only of, of TB. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's like you, do, you need to have a good understanding and that takes time and effort yeah. to get you know um yeah. so. well like no uh, undoubtedly the need for a call is a sign of failure of whatever measures where you know there, there's something wrong like if you need to call animals there's something wrong but i love your example because it's it often seems on the surface it is it's very simple right like seal is doing x you're eating my fish or eating my salmon that's called the seals and problem solved right And then like, okay, but there's like a whole very complex system that is not really visible. And like we know, if you have a very complex system, uh, it's much easier to break it rather than fix it. Yeah, so (laughs) I like to understand it. So I love that example that, oh yeah, we're gonna call some seeds and we have more salmon and actually we have the same amount of salmon, only uh, a, a, a other fishery over there gets screwed over because all the connections in a, in a, in an ecosystem that were like, Oh, you know, I didn't know that. Yeah. I like to um, think about it in terms of, uh, I don't know if you've seen back to the future yeah, and yeah, you yeah. know, like they go back and they change something and then in the future, something else changes yes. and then they try and change that. And I like to think about it a bit, a bit like that. Like, you know, you know, it's yeah, it's, it's exactly. a complex system and we don't we don't fully understand what we're, what we're in. Listen, just to finish off, like, um, as a marine biologist, as a as a or marine ecologist, um, obviously our concern, our our you know everybody who's who's um, um, conscious and, and care about the environment, the concern is about the pressure the natural environment is under. Right, uh, we have all the mainly human pressure, um, climate change, plastic pollution, growing population in general broad stroke in general most of the species most of the genera of animals are in a decline right we're talking about the sixth extinction and so on so forth um but it seems to me like we as a humans are starting uh, only starting to wake up to that right and i'm looking this as a process of you know 10, 30, 50, 60 years. So it's not like, oh, we're doing this bad. We, 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 I really do feel that we start to wake up to, to, to this thing and start putting some measures to correct that. Um, 
what's your prediction for the future? Like, what's your prediction for the future for the health of the ocean and, and the population of marine wildlife? Is it, um, are, are we just delaying the inevitable or are you, are you, are you optimistic? Like, what's, what's your view? Um, that's a, a good question. <laughs> I, I like to be optimistic because, um, because I just like to be optimistic. <laughs> like, I'd like to think that things can improve. And I think, you know, there have been cases of, of showing it improving, like, um, like what's it? Um, Life always finds a way, I think. I'm, always, I'm, I'm quoting lots of Steven Spielberg movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like, you know, it's, I think um, there have been cases, you know, where they've put in marine protected areas and they've seen increases in populations. They've put in protective measures and populations do recover, habitats do recover. It just takes a lot of time and it's a very difficult balance. And I think it's important that um, at the moment it has a lot of attention mm -hmm. and we need to keep that momentum going because in the past, you know, the stuff tends to come in cycles, like a cause will get a lot of attention mm -hmm. and then, and then like something will be done, but like, it takes a lot, like long-term things need to be done, not short-term yeah. because it takes time for this to change. And, and so like you have kind of like the trendy thing at the moment, but you need to not forget about all the other things that, you know, they still are issues that haven't necessarily been solved. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of these things, it's not like there's going to be some kind of magic wand that we can solve everything. It's just lots of incremental change mm -hmm. that needs to come. I think um, a lot of it needs to come from a political level. So you need to have like good politicians who are concerned about the environment and prioritize the environment um, and see it as not just, it's not just a case of protecting something that looks pretty, like we live in the environment and we need it to like the whole world is interconnected like we need it to breathe to breathe air we need it to get our food we need it like there's lots of um research coming out recently about kind of the um the advantages on your mental well-being if you just have interaction with the ocean or green mm -hmm. environments mm -hmm. so you know there's a, I list have a of, podcast coming on that i have a podcast coming on that <laughs> that's great because it's and it's true like you know if you feel a bit down one day and you go for a walk along the beach mm -hmm. I, I always feel much better after that or go to a forest and um and so I think like people are becoming a lot more aware of that and starting to become more connected with with nature and I actually think with the COVID um pandemic I think people are becoming a bit more aware of their surroundings like the mm. place where they live mm. and the environment in which they actually live and wanting that to be a lot more greener and you know, they were just... almost like a thrown off the rat race and and being forced to actually look around it's like oh what's around me it's like oh birds and like this green stuff it's always there yeah. and, and, and start to be more aware yeah it's it's like a common and there's, theme. there's good conversations going on now and there's good people like trying to push things forward and you know they're talking about like rewilding things and trying to get a balance between how much we farm, but how much do we also keep mm -hmm. aside for, for wildlife? And it all links in, you know, like you have um, your flood defense, you know, will be like flooding is, can be related to how well kept 
uh, your natural environment is. So trees, you know, are a natural defense against flooding to some extent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like they hold the soil together. And, and I think that it's, I'd like to think it's optimistic. I think it's just, it's going to take time and it's going to be continual pressure. Like you need, and you know, you, you could vote in some politicians who have good intentions and, you know, there's, they need to keep, you need to keep the pressure on them to fulfill what they said they're going to do, but also acknowledge that, you know, you're not necessarily going to see the results in like four years, you know, or however long the term is, you know, it needs to be continual because it's a long process. You know, some habitats and environments might recover very quickly, but others might take 20 years, you know, so. Yeah, that's it. That's it. No, I was just going to say, I do believe that it's achievable. It just, yeah. we do need to act. Oh, I, 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 I love your optimism. Uh, I think there is, there is um, a lot of people who are taking energy to act from optimism and, and not, you know, constant doom and gloom. Uh, I, I certainly, I'm one of those who, who get an energy from some, you know, light in the end of the tunnel. <laughs> but it's, it's sometimes if you're all, only reading like a doom and gloom information it's just shut down it's like oh no <laughs> there's no hope there's no hope we are doomed right so i so i so i like uh i like i like that approach you mentioned just just because you mentioned the rewilding what's your what's your, are your views on the rewilding do you think it's awesome or you think you need to be careful i mean like i'm gonna i'm not a um i live in cork city at the moment so like I'm not a farmer, I don't own land out there, but I think rewilding is great generally. So um, like I'm hugely pro it. I, I come from Scotland, which has um, very similar um, issues to, to Ireland. Um, and uh, in my spare time, I've tried to travel a bit and I really enjoy, like from a purely selfish perspective, I really enjoy hiking and just being in wild places. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I'd love to see more wild areas. I do think that um, I went to Patagonia in Argentina 10 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. During that gap I had between my, my master's and my undergrad, I decided to go hiking and live in my tent for a while. And, um, awesome. and there it's like, you can walk for four days and you might see a, a few really small scale, um, like farm, like small farms, you know, like mm-hmm. where they have kind of like, they, they do their little thing, but you can walk, you know, for days and not see anything, not see a road, a, a fence, a telegraph pole, anything. And it's yeah. really impressive. And and then I came back to the to the UK and in Scotland, like you have, you know, it seems really wild, but actually when you go up into the mountains, it's difficult to find um, locations that you can walk, like you couldn't walk in a straight line for four days and not come across like a road or, yeah. you know, different things. And uh and that's fine. Like it's a much small place and we all live um, together, but I do think the rewilding is, it's a, it's a good thing that it's been talked about. Mm-hmm. And I do think that it can be done in a way that, that actually it will be beneficial to everybody. Like yeah. you start to rewild the natural habitats and you know, you have like, like I was saying, like with the flood defense, it can help with your flood defense because yeah. you have these structures that will help. And, yeah. Um, and even def- like 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 when people are talking about rewilding, you know, there is quite often it's like they see the wolf and bear, you know, running around and killing cattle all, all, all you know straight away. But quite often rewilding is just like 
rewiggle the the stream or rewiggle the the little river, which, like you said, helps in flood prevention and other stuff like that. And you know, it's not necessarily you you got to start with with megafauna, right? You can you can start with little things and not necessarily cut your grass to the you know three inches or whatever it is just leave a little bit of the flowers for pollinators and stuff like that even like i think yeah exactly like micro rewilding it's true but like the bees are getting a lot of attention now and i get the impression that a lot of people now are like oh yeah we shouldn't be cutting our grass so short Ah, we should be letting it grow and i do feel like this is something that people are now doing and because of that you see you know you see the bees going to the flowers and also i just think it looks really nice because ireland is um it's got so many flowers like when I I moved here in in April and um there's just so much color everywhere like the there's so many flowers along the sides of the roads and just everywhere and um at the university now in Cork they've got sections of the university that they've left um Mm -hmm. I think it's part of the university and part of the council they leave some sections they don't cut the grass Yeah. And you just see like red and yellow and blue and orange and it's really nice. Like exactly. I think especially like when it's a grey day and you have like nice colors. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. So um so yeah, I think I mean like I, I understand like you have um farmers and stuff that need to coexist with this rewilding thing, but I don't think it's a case that people are proposing to rewild the whole of Ireland, you know, it's like mm-hmm. Where can it be done, and how can it be done? And like, you know, like, they... like we 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 spoke before before we hit the record button. Like we spoke that these are there are certain subjects are so emotional, and 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 people are getting so worked up, even if you mention that, and they shouldn't be, and there shouldn't be, and and you know it's so polarized, and it's like oh either this or you either that, you know, and and I, I you know I'm I'm kind of floating between various subjects and various positions and i'm always going to talk on the podcast to you know absolutely anyone uh from from the outdoor space who who's willing to to you know uh, talk with me and, and quite often even my god like hey but, but what's your view on this like like kind of like people need to put me like you either this or you either that it's like i don't i don't know i'm trying to learn i'm trying to get the information i, I i'm gonna listen to you but i'm also gonna listen to this guy over there right and they he might have a point you might have a point but as long as you guys gonna be like a so divisive and you're just gonna be barking at each other this is gonna be like no you know we're not gonna go anywhere yeah I think I think the human brain likes to categorize things into like black and white and actually the situations are far more gray and it's and it and it and it also you know I I we're going off topic a little bit now but I I think it's good conversation that people kind of are seems unwilling or unable to hold two potentially contradicting concepts in their brain like uh, and I, I give you an example, like, you know, uh, like, as, like, for example, as a hunter, as a many hunters, like, how can you say that you love deer and you care about deer and at the same time go and shoot one, right? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And people were doing that for thousands and thousands of years. There was nothing strange about it and nothing unreasonable about it. I care about all the deer and I, I love them. They're beautiful. They're majestic which doesn't mean that I cannot go and harvest one and put it in my freezer. Like, 
The, yeah. and, and it's, these are, you know, I, I think that we, and I heard someone, uh, a physicist is giving example uh, from, from, you know, uh, talking about Newtonian and Einsteinian uh, uh, view of the world. Is it like, these are potentially contradicting concepts, but you need to hold them both to have an actually full view of the world. And this is like going to my very simple example of the deer. You actually need to be able to hold both of those concepts in your head to have like a full view of the world. And it seems like people are, you know, not willing or like, like no, you either need to be this or you need to be this. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And you know, it's not like, and those people will need to talk to get somewhere. Otherwise it's just going to be a constant mm. battle, you know? And, exactly. uh, Listen, you know, like, uh, Sam, thanks. Thanks a lot for your time. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate doing this given uh, all your move <laughs> and, and all the things that you have on, on your head. So uh, thanks a lot for that. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll speak again. Yeah, hopefully. And thanks very much for having me. And I hope, um, hope it's been interesting. And I haven't rambled too much. So, no, no, yeah. it's, 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 it's fantastic. And, and uh, yeah, really happy to talk to you. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you.